Our next presenter is well known to most of you, Catherine Scott Sturdivant. Kathy is professor of history at Pikes Peak Community College, teaches American Colorado Pikes Peak women's American Indian and Southwest history, among other topics, and has won local, state, and national teaching awards. Very active in Colorado and local history, she has co-edited and contributed papers and presentations to most of the PPLD Regional History Symposium and presented to many other events. Kathy also participates actively to support the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, leads a project to preserve the Victor's Mining, Miners Union Hall, and works with the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Also, if you have her email address and a question comes up about local history, don't bother to look it up, just email Kathy. <laughs> for, for example, I needed to know the name of General Palmer's horse, and it is? Forget. <laughs> <laughs> Remember? Because I have forgotten. Diablo. Oh, uh, Diablo, yes. Diablo yes. Diablo's the famous one, but there's more than one. See, she always knows more than I do. I know the really important thing, Mike, which was it was always a stallion. <laughs> All right. Um, some of you will remember that I coined a phrase that you may occasionally hear from others. I am about to speak about our father who art in the intersection. Hallowed be thy name. Um, I, my opinions of him have changed and will continue to change over the years. And thank you to Leah and thank you in advance to Susan. Uh, and thank you to Lucy for adding to my opinions and knowledge of Palmer. Um, one of the things that those of us who study him keep trying to do now is not only to learn more from all the primary sources we have in the community, but to figure out how to synthesize him and place him in context other than our own community. It's always bothered me that he seemed to be one of the Gilded Age industrialists, like a Rockefeller or a Carnegie, and yet not recognized nationally. In case you didn't know what the Gilded Age is about, um, the name came from a book written by these two men, and I always wonder if Charles Dudley Warner would look up at Mark Twain that way and say, why did I ever co-author with him? Um, <laughs> But Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner were creating an image of the time period after the Civil War and Reconstruction up to about 1900, that everything was made to look all shiny and wonderful, but it was like coating something with guilt, and if you scraped the surface, you'd see rotten corruption and worthless plaster of Paris underneath. Uh, there is a lot of that too, the lives of the wealthy people of the Gilded Age. And these are the men that are usually most highlighted if you look up Gilded Age tycoons or Gilded Age industrialists or robber barons. And of course, the top four nationally might be these four men, and we've talked about a couple of them today. In fact, when Mike was introducing the event, he was noting how you could look at a John D. Rockefeller or an Andrew Carnegie and on the one hand see something very shiny and wonderful about their success and achievements and on the other hand scratch the surface and see something ugly like Ludlow or the Homestead Strike. That's generally true and if I say generally really often excuse the pun it always happens when I talk about Palmer. Um, the bottom four are the Western Big Four. And being a Californian, I learned about them a lot when I was growing up. Um, Stanford, Huntington, Crocker, and Hopkins. Railroad, robber barons. Uh, but obviously very famous philanthropists later in their life and developers of all sorts. 
Leah and I were talking about where does Palmer fit in, or why don't people let him in, or why does national history not look at central western history quite the same way? Because the coastal, the Californian leaders, tend to get the repute with the eastern ones, but central west, not so much. There's also an issue about putting Palmer in context, which is nobody has written a adult biography of Palmer, a full-length scholarly study, if we can call Fishers that, since 1939. And so the best books today that we have on Palmer, the best newer books, tend to be from a different angle. And of course there is Joyce's wonderful book which gives everyone an introduction and is especially good for a younger audience. And there's the book put out by this symposium, which I keep telling them, although maybe someday that'll change. Um, but that is the best book on William Jackson Palmer from a scholarly perspective, because as you can see in these symposia, we put together some pretty cool stuff. Um, so you'll find things like Leah's study of Palmer's religion and how it impacted his Civil War service, such as what Lucy was explaining to you. But it's sitting there waiting to be done, a scholarly analytical study of Palmer. And I don't know whether maybe somehow people think he's just too boring when, it, when somebody's a nice guy. <laughs> this has been the one that, that I think maybe is making some difference because notice on the cover, finally, you have a study of big railroad tycoons building western railroads and he's one of the three. So that's the first time I've seen it. It's not necessarily going to rank in the scholarly category nationally, and I'm sorry, I can hear you, Will. I know you're thundering up there. <laughs> but the ways to put him in context would include, first of all, and you heard Leah mention this, as many Gilded Age industrialists did, he is a monopolist, but only generally from the vertical rather than the horizontal form of integration. And if this were not just a list, if I drew you a pyramid, and I'm not good with geometry, but if I drew you a pyramid and you start at the bottom, you start with the raw materials, and in order to make your business successful, you own every stage of the process so that you charge yourself for all those services instead of having to pay someone else. And that's why these men would often almost own their workers with low pay and deep credit and company towns. And as you can see, and we could add more, Palmer did that a lot. He was not really a horizontal integrationist in the sense of wanting to mo monopolize all of a kind. He didn't need to own every railway of the West. He does have one interpretation that's kind of obvious when he sees others come in, which is he doesn't like people who seem to intrude by not understanding that he was there first and he will always do it best. <laughs> Another way that he fits with the Gilded Age industrialists is they usually made a castle for themselves. And this is just one. Uh, notice it's Vanderbilt's summer cottage at Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, that you know that these men have palatial estates. I think of Hearst out in California as well. And so Citizen Kane is a good story of that. Of course he did that. 
Um, and of course, it's a pattern for these men to imitate England in many different ways, including their housing, to decorate with European imports, or in Palmer's case, I've always thought it was fun how he chose the stones for the castle, that they had to look as English as possible, but he wasn't going to pay to have them shipped over. <laughs> so having a little bit of lichen on them was good. Um, and to live lavishly. He did those things. Um, he also imported servants, by the way. Lots of different people to work for him. And his wife ended up doing this even better. It's even better to go live in England and to at least rent a manor house or a castle, to have a salon and entertain people like Oscar Wilde or John Singer Sargent. But the one thing that I don't see Palmer doing, and this is a distinction that pertains to Susan's topic, is he does not sell his daughters to aristocrats. That's a very famous pattern of these men. Vanderbilt's probably the most famous example. Another famous example is Winston Churchill's mother of, of daughters of wealthy Americans who end up marrying poor aristocrats. Palmer would not do that. And there they are. And of course, you have this picture of Queen out in the hall. We, uh, when we found it, or when Vic Stone, who found it, gave it to the rest of us, we nicknamed it Hot Queen. <laughs> He is what I would call a romantic or a social engineer, but a romantic social engineer. And there are lots of things he does that set him apart from the others because he's the engineer in the first place. And he loves railroad building more than any of the other things about his work. He also has plans for everything and shares them in his letters with Queen, of course, that are very famous. You also heard from Leah that he also shares tremendous stress that he has. And we found a couple of nice things in a couple of his letters. One of my favorites is he realizes as he has participated in the conquest of the West that open spaces and animals and Indians are disappearing, oh my. And so he decides that he wants a deer park that's going to be at Glen Erie. And they're going to have stock it with antelope and black-tailed deer and f arrange for our buffalo in Glen Erie. And all other animals native to the plain, not forgetting even the agile little prairie dog with its twinkle of a tail. <laughs> These inhabitants of the Great Plains, soon to disappear before the advancing tread of emigration, and here's one for Aaron, should here all be preserved, along with a few Indians. <laughs> to recall more vividly the wild prairie life which the Americans of a few years hence will know only from the pages of storybooks. So he has a preservationist sense toward things, albeit unfortunate at times. He also tells Queen in one of his letters, and this is a, an example of his ethic, that when she gets to know him better as her husband, it will be so wifely of her that she will know him so well that should anyone ask her, will the general do this? Will the general help me with that? She would know a thing is right and generous or noble or brave or disinterested, he will do it. Or if it is selfish or underhanded or wrong or mean or ungenerous or suspicious or false, he won't. He sets an ethic. 
those of us who teach westward expansion love to use this painting, American Progress by John Gast in 1872. Would Palmer love this? Palmer loved this. Palmer loved the excitement of discovering the resources of a new place, conquering them, utilizing them, and maybe wanting to save a few of them when they disappear. The, this is a, a blurry map, I know, but I wanted you to see the land subsidies that the Kansas Pacific Railroad was receiving when he was leading its construction. This is how many of these men became wealthy, was the land subsidies that they could resell. Also remember that it's, it's the construction of Kansas Pacific, his first big railroad project, that destroys the buffalo. More than any other single project, this destroys the biggest herd across the Central Plains. A herd where William Tecumseh Sherman mentioned that he rode the train for 150 miles and it never left this site on both sides of the train of a huge buffalo herd. That's how many there were. By the way, one of my favorite things about the herd in that area is there, was a there is a Republican river, and so this was often referred to as the Republican herd. <laughs> Palmer killed them. No, <laughs> not really. Um, notice how he wanted to grow his railroad. His first idea was a north-south, which is very according to what might be ultimately successful, which is the goal of a transcontinental railroad in the southern sphere of things. Also deeply involved, you've heard this mentioned, the Mexican National Railway. Interestingly, although he might appear to be an ugly American while he's doing this, he is the first one to be able to negotiate a nice concession with the Mexican president, albeit perhaps a bit of a puppet president to develop a railroad through Mexico. And then there's this interesting quote from Mr. Peabody, where he traveled with Palmer and he said he was impressed with how Palmer tra trained his American workers to treat the Mexican workers. You are building a railroad for the use of the Mexican people. They have their own ways, which it is not for you to criticize. Try to adapt yourself to these ways in a spirit of sympathy. Very advanced for his time. And of course, he's an industrialist in his vertical integration who owns a steel mill and so has more in common with men like Carnegie. But he always believed, again wrote to Queen, that he thought these places that where he had men work would be happy places with happy workers who would be so fulfilled they would never see the need for unions. <laughs> Don't ever blame Ludlow on Palmer. He got out of it before they were that unhappy. And of course he built his magnificent hotel like the Antlers. And here's an ad for how exclusive it was going to be, very much trying to appeal to the wealthy classes. But that dream of the transcontinental was not going to happen. That's where he wanted to send it. Can you see the little flag up in the middle that made it not happen? Royal Gorge. Okay, he had to control that to make it go through where he wanted it to go through. And you've probably heard of the Royal Gorge War. It really wasn't a shoot 'em up war, although the other side, the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, which I can never say without wanting to be Judy Garland. Um, but, woo-woo! <laughs> but, but 
Although the other side had hired Bat Masterson um, to be their mafia, <laughs> if we're going there, um, it really was more of a, of a track-laying war than it was a shoot-em-up war. And there, it's a race even more than it is a war. But losing meant that Palmer was going to win thanks to Peabody. Because this is where, by selling out, he could have lost everything. And he also felt that he had literally sold out because the men he had to turn to were men he didn't trust. Nevertheless, because of the assistance of Peabody and the help of just being able to advertise the west of Colorado and Utah for tourism and health, he was able to make the western Denver and Rio Grande work much better for the rest of his career and the future. And these are the two men he didn't want to sell to. And notice there are books about them. <laughs> Jay Gould. And I'm the one who branded poor Mr. Osgood with coal monopolizer on his forehead. Um, that's not on the book cover. But these are men who would use the practices that Palmer either completely eschewed or if he couldn't stay away from them entirely, it's mainly when he feels he's getting his hands dirty that it happens. And after this, he goes to philanthropy. Like Lucy and probably anyone else who studies Palmer, I think, and I have some expertise in this area I prefer not to share, but I think that one of the solutions to Palmer's not being typical of the Gilded Age industrialist, to being a nice enough guy that he might not seem as colorful as a Jay Gould, for example, is his Quaker background. Uh, one minister after Palmer's death said that he was the best unconscious Christian he'd ever seen, by which he meant he wasn't attending church and wasn't known to be a member of a church to that minister. But Isaac Clothier, who was his childhood friend, responded, once born a Quaker can never be wholly anything else. And I think that William Jackson Palmer retained the same feelings, the same thoughts, the same conscience that caused him to be anti-slavery, that caused him to struggle with whether a pacifist should compromise when the war is against slavery. That same soul, that same inner light that Palmer had was always there. It was never going to go away. And so when I think of him, I think of him at a place like the Cherry Street Meeting House, which was one of his family meeting houses, and his decision as a soldier to be, to go do that. And remember, if thee will fight, fight well, was one of the things said to him. So he had to do that in anything he did. He also, here's my sort of summing up, he also, as a Quaker, would have believed in perfection. Now, not in the sense of realistically thinking human beings can achieve that, but in always having a goal, especially spiritually, of perfection. He would believe in freedom. He would believe in complete equality in the eyes of God. He would believe that freedom and peace come from having a clear conscience and knowing that you're doing the best you can every single day with every single contact to live up to those beliefs. 
He also, therefore, believed in maintaining a strong character and everyone who knew him commented on it. He had st staunch morality about vice, as we know. Um, he would have thought it, he was a coward not to fight in that war, but a true Quaker, having fought in a war, would realize it would be a coward to ever do it again. And the Hampton Institute, you've heard, Andrew Carnegie wrote a gave a speech, an essay, um, about the Negro in America. And Palmer went after him, even though they became good friends. Palmer criticized Carnegie for implying that lynching was somehow understandable, uh, for implying that the Negro was inferior and the Negro should not have the right to vote. And Palmer insisted on equality. He also attacked the South in his writings for the Jim Crow laws. And as you've heard mentioned, he was a very active member and petitioner and letter writer in the Anti-Imperialist League. And most of what I see him saying is how wrong it was for the United States in the Spanish-American War to take on Cuba, to take on the Philippines, even to take on the Venezuelan boundary dispute. All because he is accusing Americans of hypocrisy and of not seeing the equality of people because they have darker skin. So Palmer is incredibly advanced for an industrialist of his time. And we know his benefactions. We know he gave a million dollars to his employees when he retired. And we know that to him, high society became having children in the Great Hall and having a reunion of his Civil War compadres. So I want to say one little thing that harkens back to what I said at the beginning. You, some of you remember Rhoda Wilcox? Last time I talked about Palmer in one of these symposia, I mentioned that Rhoda, who wrote The Man on the Iron Horse, school teacher, when she was unfortunately not as strong in her mind as she had been, I was sitting next to her at a conference, we talked about Palmer, and she said, will you be my heir? And I said, well, I, before I, what I said, I'm thinking, what will this mean? <laughs> but what could you say? I said, of course. I said, tell me what you mean. <laughs> and she said, I've always intended, if they ever try to move that statue, <laughs> to chain myself to it. <laughs> and some of you, I know Leah for one, some of you will remember my giving that talk several years ago in one of these symposia, and what I did after I said it is, who's going to be there with me? <laughs> I see hands, thank you. Well, and now when we drive down Platt, we don't have to swear at Palmer. We can blame Peabody. <laughs> <laughs> Our final presenter today is Susan Fletcher. She's the historian and archivist for The Navigators, where she documents and interprets the history of Glen Erie. Susan received her MA in Public History from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. She is a featured speaker on local history throughout the Pikes Peak region, including the ongoing Lunch and Learn series at Garden of the Gods Visitor Center. She is the co-author of the book Dawson Trotman in his own words and has written several articles. 
Fletcher is also a member of the Colorado Springs Historic Preservation Board. In addition to her career in history, Fletcher is also an artist who has pieces in several galleries and private collections. Susan. Well, Mike, when you began the program, you've defined the word benefactor for us, and you also told us what a benefactress is, and I have a sentence that actually uses that word in context to open my paper. When Marjorie Palmer Watt died, the Colorado Springs Gazette remarked that the Pikes Peak region had lost its foremost patroness and most generous benefactress, whose philanthropies have been only second to those of her father in contributing to the development of Colorado Springs. So even though we've heard so much about General Palmer's legacy in the city, I would like to argue that one of his most powerful gifts that he gave to us was his three daughters. Um, as we close out our day of looking at the bigwigs and benefactors of the Pikes Peak region, I'd like to uh, turn our gaze to Elsie, Dorothy, and Marjorie Palmer and talk about the continuation of the Palmer family legacy in Colorado Springs. Elsie, Dorothy, and Marjorie are important figures to Colorado Springs for several different reasons. First of all, they inform our historical understanding of General and Queen Palmer themselves. They humanize these two legendary figures for us. The tender relationship that the girls had with their parents does a lot to inform our understanding of the virtues of kindness and philanthropy that William and Queen both transmitted to their children. The girls also served as high-profile figures in the community in their own right, and as they got old enough, they contributed generously to the well-being of the city in far-reaching ways. Just 15 months after the first stake of the Fountain Colony was driven, William and Queen had their first baby on October 30, 1872. They named her Elsie. Elsie enjoyed a relatively carefree childhood, but the two youngest Palmer daughters were born under the shadow of Queen's heart disease. In 1880, Queen and her friend Miss Stradle were making their way up to Leadville on the carriage roads for a picnic. Um, on their way down, Queen had a heart attack. Very shortly thereafter, she gave birth to her second daughter, Dorothy, on October 29, 1880. Queen's health continued to decline, and her doctors advised her to move to a different climate. She followed William to England while he was there on a business trip, and there gave birth to her third daughter, Marjorie, in 1881. Trying to find a geographical location that would be suitable for her recovery, Queen moved her three daughters to New York, and they stayed there for two winters, and then they eventually settled in England. General Palmer remained in the United States with frequent visits to see his family, and many letters passing back and forth to keep him apprised of what was going on. During their time in England, Queen's deeply held values were the primary influence in the girls' lives. I know that we often think about Palmer as being I mean, clearly, this great and wonderful man must have been the primary influence in their lives. He must have been the one to transmit values to them. Um, I would like to argue that a Queen actually contributed quite a lot herself. Um, by 1886, Queen's health had, de had deteriorated to the point where she thought her death was imminent. And so, thinking that she was on the verge of death, she wrote a heartbreaking farewell letter to her daughters. Uh, she wrote to them, Be kind. Be kind. Be kind, as you do not know how such a kind word or act may do for the one who may need it. Mother thinks that kindness is as beautiful as any virtue that you may have. Be gentle and brave, with a hand always outstretched to any soul who may be helped by it. And as you freely give, be generous to receive. Doubtful that the privilege, great indeed though it is and may be, 
of giving belongs to you exclusively. Queen closed her letter by encouraging them to throw their energies into doing the good at hand. Well, Queen was not on death's door at the time she actually survived. Um, but the sentiments that she conveyed reflect her own deeply held values of charity towards those in need, kindness towards all, and leaving the world a better place. Now, throughout this period, General Palmer remained part of his daughter's lives through regular visits and correspondence. And through his letters, he instilled some values in his daughters um, of his own. He taught them about discipline, order, and even humor. You might not realize it, but General Palmer was kind of a funny guy. When we think about General Palmer, we consider him as this mythical figure. He was the builder of the new American West. He was involved in abolition. He was the second youngest general in the Civil War. I mean, what a guy, right? Well, his letters to his daughters, however, reveal a much more human and tender side of the general. This man who had such grand nation-building escapades also cared about what time his daughters were going to bed and how much exercise they were getting and how much money they were spending. <laughs> now, uh, Leah talked about the desperate financial straits that Palmer was in, and he often didn't have a lot of spare change. He had some pretty bad business concerns. Um, apparently, Elsie didn't really understand that. Um, so she, a lot of her letters to her father were about, Dad, can I have some more money, please? Um, so although it's unclear if 19-year-old Elsie could actually spend money as freely as a modern-day teenager, or if the Palmer women really were short on cash in England, um, we have one letter uh, dated in uh, February of 1891, and when General Palmer is dressing Elsie's concern for more money. He basically tells her that if he's going to go through the sacrifice of earning more money just to send it to her, that she needs to earn that money in turn. So he wrote and he told her the conditions for his financial contract with her. He said, the present requirements are no tea or coffee or stimulants. To be out and about and take a 10 minute walk at 10, min 10 minutes before eight, to take a walk or ride in the afternoon, before lunch and after breakfast, ditto between lunch and dinner. The two together should not be less than three miles of walk every day unless the weather should absolutely prohibit. This means an American storm, not the usual English sluggish storm. <laughs> Off to bed at 10 or earlier without fail, except when theaters, concerts, or parties are on hand. In her letter back, Elsie attempted to negotiate this contract by countering each term, finally ending with, can't you make a little change in that? <laughs> now, throughout this period, Queen continued to struggle with her health and with the knowledge that she would not likely live to see her daughters grow up. Um, by 1894, her health had taken um, its final decline. She secluded herself in her upper rooms at Oak Cottage in England so her daughters wouldn't see her suffering, and she passed away shortly after Christmas in December of 1894. After her death, General Palmer uh, went to England and brought his daughters back home. At the time, Elsie was 22, Dorothy was 14, and Marjorie was 13. This is pretty young to be losing a mom. The girls settled into their new life in Colorado. The movers and shakers in the Pikes Peak region quickly warmed up to the new additions to their social circle, and the girls became their father's social representative at many functions. By the early 1900s, all of the girls had grown into beautiful women with a uh, reputation for kindness and generosity. 
1902, Dorothy Palmer, whose nickname was Das, and who I will be referring to as such for the next paragraph here, had her best friend, 24-year-old Dor Dorothy Commons Carr, travel with the family from England to Glenary to stay for about eight months. Uh, Miss Commons Carr kept a detailed journal of her adventures, uh, which is in the special collections at the Pioneers Museum, and she remarks on all kinds of adventures that she had with the Palmer girls. Um, her diary gives insight into the philanthropic work that Palmer and his daughters were doing at the time. Um, as Leah mentioned, uh, by 1901, Palmer had retired from the railroad and had sold um, and had actually made a lot of money. So he's finally able to start giving philanthropically, and the girls' lives have changed pretty drastically because of that. Um, and he also had enough money to give Elsie her desired monthly allowance. <laughs> Um, in March 1903, the girls traveled to the Asylum for Deaf, Dumb, and Blind Children, which Palmer had donated the land for near Knob Hill. Um, in April, Doss and Dorothy, Commons Carr, went to see over Glockner Hospital. A few days later, the women attended the new opening of the wing at Glockner, where most of Colorado Springs would gather to celebrate. Now, apparently, Palmer's generosity was pretty well known in Colorado, and by the end of his life, he had a lot of people asking him for money, too. Um, as if they were his own teenage children. <laughs> in January of 1903, Dorothy Cummins Carr writes about an incident in which uh, Doss interviewed two begging little nuns who seemed to have come all the way from Denver to tell her that General Palmer would go to eternal flame as one of the rich. There seemed to be no way out of it except by his endowing an orphan asylum in Colorado Springs. <laughs> In September 1906, tragedy struck the Palmer family again when Palmer had his riding accident that left him paralyzed. A team of doctors and nurses moved into Glenary to care for him, including his resident physician, Dr. Henry Watt. Around this time, Dorothy decided to go to London to study nursing, and she left for England shortly thereafter. By 1908, she had made a decision to stay in England full-time to pursue social work. Although this was a rather unusual decision for a girl of her social standing and wealth, um, her life path was an embodiment of the principles of generosity, kindness, and self-sacrifice that both William and Queen had taught her. And I wish that there is time to talk about more, more about Dorothy's contributions um, in England, but this is the Pikes Peak Regional History Symposium and not the England Symposium. After General Palmer's accident, uh, the popular sentiment that had been afforded to him by his townspeople extended to Elsie and Marjorie as well. As daughters of the number one local celebrity, when it came time for the sisters' engagements and upcoming weddings, newspapers in Colorado Springs and Denver covered the events in breathless detail. The night before Elsie's Glenary wedding to Leopold Hamilton Myers of England uh, in January of 1908, the Springs Gazette reported, an account of the high regard entertained by citizens of Colorado Springs to General Palmer, the public is more than ordinarily interested in every item of news regarding the preparations of marriage for his eldest daughter, Miss Elsie Palmer. Now, Marjorie's engagements and wedding plans caused an even bigger stir in the community. In August of 1907, the Denver Rocky Mountain Daily News broke the story of her engagement to Captain Wellesley, a young officer in the British Army. This match was of international importance. Now, Dr. Sturdivant had talked a little bit about General Palmer not selling his daughter to the British aristocracy, but that actually kind of almost happened. <laughs> 
Um, as a microcosm of the larger demand for wealthy American heiresses of the newly rich industrialists to marry uh, the younger sons of British nobility, um, this uh, Marjorie's case is a, a part of a larger historical trend. This match could have potentially given the Wellesley family, if they were in need of cash, um, Marjorie's inheritance could have brought them much needed money, and their title could have given extra legitimacy to Marjorie's new family money and to her western hometown. So this match was a pretty big deal for isolated Coloradans. As the Denver newspapers reported, as soon as the news leaked out, it became tea table talk in the fashionable homes of Colorado Springs, and it will be the most important social function that has ever taken place in Colorado Springs. <laughs> the wedding party, consisting of Marjorie, General Palmer, some other family members, and his entourage of medical staff departed for England in the spring of 1908. To the great shock of Colorado Springs residents, news of her broken engagement reached them in 1908. The newspaper articles indicate that there might have been another woman associated with Captain Wellesley, but most of them seemed to settle on the fact that her health had taken so sudden a decline that it would be absolutely impossible for her to live in England full time as a married woman. And of course, there was also the rumor that on the long sea voyage over there, she had told her father that she was actually in love with Dr. Watt, his doctor. <laughs> Whatever the actual cause of the broken engagement, Marjorie's halt had indeed taken a turn for the worse, and Palmer despaired of his daughter's life. After letting Marjorie recover in England for several months, he brought her back home to Glenary. By the spring of 1909, General Palmer's health had become a final decline, and he passed away on March 13, 1909. In a letter to her friend Ida, Elsie remarked that even in, her la even in his last days, her father was always patient and is, I feel, the truest example of courage I have ever known or heard of. Elsie, Dorothy, and Marjorie were now orphans. In July, Marjorie announced her engagement to Dr. Watt. And the couple married in September. With a note of relief, the Denver Times reported, the wedding of Miss Palmer culminated a series of romances that have kept society agog for the last two years. <laughs> After the wedding, Elsie and Dorothy returned to their homes in England. As General Palmer's will was settled, the sisters received the largest sum of Palmer's other inheritors. Um, portions of the estate valued at over $700,000 each, paying just a 2% estate tax, which was apparently the lowest percentage of tax that they could have paid at the time. In the years to follow, the three girls had a variety of business decisions about what to do with their father's estate. There was the question of what to do about Glenary. Apparently, they initially had an offer of, uh, to sell Glenary for $450,000, and they decided that they wanted to hang on to it for a while longer. They would later change their minds and try to unload the property onto someone else. In 1910, their uncle-in-law, Clark Mellon, sued them over a matter of real estate indebtedness to their late father and the court later rejected this claim. But they, they throughout their adult lives, were continuing to deal with these, thing, these matters of what to do. Um, in Colorado Springs, Marjorie and Dr. Watt lived quiet and peaceful lives, continuing, um, 
queen and General Palmer's legacy of philanthropy. Now, as sufferers of tuberculosis themselves, Dr. Watt and Marjorie were familiar with the nature of treatment options in Colorado Springs. Although the Pikes Peak region was internationally famous as a great place to recover from all sorts of lung ailments, um, many of the treatment options remained well out of the reach of the poor. A great need existed for preventative care and affordable treatment. In 1910, the Board of Associated Charities proposed building a sanatorium that would address this concern. They envisioned a hospital where people in need would pay at most $8 a week for care, and in some cases, patients would be treated for free. Elsie, Dorothy, and Marjorie allowed the board to purchase attractive land from the Colorado Springs Company near Bethel Hospital off of Boulder. Uh, they also contributed $700 of their own money towards the project. A group of merchants objected to that particular location, and they moved uh, the, the property to some land east of Knob Hill. On April 1st, 1911, Sunny Rest Sanatorium admitted its first patient. And you can see some pictures of Sunny Rest up there. After a few years of relatively normal life for the Palmer girls, tragedy struck again. In the early morning of December 1st, 1917, Dr. Watt suffered a hemorrhage and died unexpectedly. Marjorie was shattered. At the age of only 36, she had lost her mother, her father, and now her husband. Her health took a frightening downturn, and as doctors despaired of her life. According to Ruth Washburn, when it became apparent that she would live, she said, if I must live, I'm going to do something worthwhile. She decided to continue battling the issues of tuberculosis and the living conditions that contributed to the disease. In 1919, Marjorie gave funds to build a new unit at Sunny Rest, which was later renamed in honor of her and her husband. Um, by, by the end of that year, Mrs. Watt had given the director securities valued at $110,000, some cash, and her home at 1801 East Calibra Avenue to provide a permanent endowment. Many of the patients at Sunny Rest were children who had come from homes where parents were also living uh, with tuberculosis. And Marjorie decided that in order to actually stem the spread of the disease, she needed to address these living concerns. Initially, she opened her stately home on Calibra, and there's a picture of her house over there, uh, to local children who she believed were suffering from, from malnourishment in order to create a nutrition camp. She hoped that providing them with a noon meal and by letting them have the runs of her sunny grounds, she could nurse them back to health and prevent future illness. In December of 1921, a team of doctors selected four children um, from a list of candidates nominated by local teachers of the students most in need of rest, food, and supervision, carefully excluding cases of active tuberculosis. The four boys and girls lived on the property full time. Uh, they were able to take lessons. And they also sunned themselves. Um, this is actually in February, so. <laughs> Uh, by March of 1922, they admitted four more children to the program, and by the end of the six-month experiment, all of the children went home much healthier than they had been before. Now, the project was very successful, and Marjorie looked for a way to continue her work. Uh, Glockner Sanatorium stepped up and offered to um, continue the nutrition camp, because by this time, uh, Marjorie is wanting to move back home to England. Um, they come up with a plan to build this wing at Glockner Sanatorium, and they decide that they're going to hold um, what's called the New Carzar, which was a three-day bazaar to raise funds. Uh, apparently, the bazaar included entertainment by this guy, who was a strong man who could hold himself up. Um, he uh, suspended himself up from the ceiling with a wire on a wire uh, hanging by his teeth. 
uh, the three-day event raised $13,000. Um, on October 1st, 1923, the nutrition camp opened its doors. Uh, now, Marjorie's financial gift had a long-range impact on the town. Um, ten years later, in a, publish, in a pamphlet that the camp published, the trustee stated, ultimately this work means that the grown-up citizens of Colorado Springs will be stronger and healthier, that there will be less sickness and less of a financial burden on the community to care for the impoverished invalids. Five years after Marjorie had departed to live near her sisters in England, her pastor, Arthur Taft, preached a sermon at St. Stephen's in honor of her continued legacy in Colorado Springs. He remarked on the generosity of her giving away the large majority of her property during her lifetime, saying, Do not let us deceive ourselves. It is not given out of a great superfluity that she had no use for. She gave so generously because she intends to still further simplify her own manner of living. Where would I have been all these years without all this money, she said. Take it and use it just as wisely as you know how to help the other sick who have not been as fortunate as I. Reverend Taft then called upon the citizens of Colorado Springs to carry out her legacy by continuing to provide for the medical care um, of the children of the city. Marjorie died in England in 1925 at the age of 44. Her sisters would have longer lives with Elsie passing away in 1955 and Dorothy in 1961. So as I have the privilege of wrapping up our symposium day, um, I'd like to extend uh, Reverend Taft's call to the citizens of Colorado Springs. All of the people that we've looked at today, the Palmers, Edmund Van Deest, Fred Barr, um, have set a bar pretty high for us. And I think it's up to us to figure out how we as individuals living in 2014 are going to live in order to better our own community. And in closing, I want you to all try to live up to Queen Palmer's letter to her daughters, um, to be kind, as you do not know how such a kind word or act may do for the one who may need it. Be gentle and brave, with a hand always outstretched to any soul who may be helped by it. We can have our speaker set. Who needs Downton Abbey? We've got Glen Erie. <laughs> Questions for our final speakers here. Yes, ma'am. Um, Did any of the girls have children? Um, only Elsie had children. Uh, she had Elsie Queen and Eve. Are there, are there people around related to Jennifer There are Palmer? descendants. Um, Leah could probably answer the question of the exact nature of those descendants better than I can. Um, General Palmer's great-grandson is named Tim Nicholson. He is a starving artist who lives in London, England. Um, he is the son of EQ. His cousins, uh, by Elsie's daughter Eve, um, still attend Colorado College. They send each generation to Colorado College, and they were here, uh, I know a couple of students, just two years ago. So they still come and have a connection to the Pikes Peak region. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Garden Branch subdivision was not incorporated for some time, but I heard it was Palmer's Garden. Okay, the, there's a subdivision in town. In fact, I live about a block away from there called Garden Ranch, and I'm going to learn something new. It uh, was General Palmer's garden. Yes. 
Um, General Palmer purchased it from his good friend Louis Eric, who owned it for a time. He ha was said to always be desirous of the property. He thought it was a beautiful and fertile place. And he, um, Eric grew crops there, and Palmer did as well. He purchased it right around the turn of the century. One more question? If not, I'll pick up on Susan's challenge to us by being even more pointed. How many of you are members of the Friends of the Library? Oh, come on, get out your checkbooks and pick up an application back there, okay? Where do you think these things come from? Uh, thanks to our speakers, thanks to all of our speakers today.